0: Errol Buckley was 18 years old. He was the youngest brother in a family of 10 children from Donny Carney in North Dublin. Friday the 13th of February was going to be a huge night for him. He'd been working up to it for weeks. There was a disco dancing competition in the Stardust Club that night. Errol had made it to the final.
1: They started off having competitions up there, up in the Stardust. Uh, Every second Friday there'd be be different heats, like, you know. We just said, I'll go in for the crack, you know what I mean? And, uh... I got through to the final then, I think there, was, there could have been 20, 25 in the final, like, you know, on, on that night, on the, the night of the starters, like, you know. All the brothers and sisters, my sister was a go dancer. All the brothers looked up, they liked singing and all that, like the murders and all that, like, you know, but uh, my brother Jimmy, he was a good performer, like, you know, he was able to get up and do a bit, like, you know, on the stage and that, you know. He went in for a lot of competitions. I think there was competitions on down the Dallamay then. They used to have uh, nights, like, uh, best dancers and all that down there and you, you won a good few of them, like you know so you'd be just watching them in the house and all that moving and that, you know
0: The lads took their disco dancing very seriously Once Errol had got through to the final his brothers made sure that he'd be ready
1: Oh, well, We were doing all that before we went out when, when I got through to the final um, all my mates and all that, you know they were all going up to cheer me on, you know and uh, gee, you were fairly nervous like you know what I mean, because it was the first thing to do with this you know, but uh, the brothers were all we were all dancing in the house before we went there had a few drinks, you know. had a group in the house and they were like, you know. But uh, it was a good bit of crack like with them, you know. They were egging me on come on, we have to deal with this, you know. the the book the uh, tradition going, you know. <laughs> I was actually doing a bit of practice in the house now, you know. I was just, I have to take this business <laughs> areas. I was looking at the women and all that, and then we'd get the old moves up, we'd have a few guards, you know. Well, he's good.
0: <laughs> Anyone who had been in the stardust for the past few weeks knew how big a night this was going to be. One of those regulars was Antoinette Keegan, who was heading out with her sisters Mary, Martina and their friends.
2: There was a big build-up to it for about two weeks because we had been there to the starters and it was like, you know, the competition was, it was the finals that night that one girl was going to be picked and one boy was going to be picked. I'd be ringing from my job to my sister Mary and her job and uh, we'd be ringing... Uh, other friend Mary Kenny and other friends writing saying what are you wearing and then the big build up to the usual mm. and then like other friends would be saying I'm not allowed to go, I'm not being told like I'm grounded from the last time I, that I got in late and everything else but some of the, some friends were allowed loud go and that particular night it was Friday the 13th and my father Lord have mercy on him pleaded with us please don't go, please don't go it's Friday the 13th and I just kept saying dad we would be
3: okay i look after him
0: other parents were superstitious too. Linda Bishop's mother was hesitant to let her teenage daughter go out on the unlucky day.
3: Yeah, I remember I wasn't in work that day. I was in town and um, I was on the bus with my mum and my brother and talking about being Friday the 13th. And I said, hey, Friday the 13th. Um, but I'm still going out tonight, you know what I mean? Um, and then we went inside. It was different when we went in because there was different petitions. Normally the back part was closed off. But because it was going to be such... We, and we always sat in this raised seating on the left-hand side. But when we went in, that was closed off. And the back was open because it was a bigger area. I suppose they were expecting a busier night. It was Valentine's dance competition.
0: A disco dancing competition pulling in a big crowd might feel a bit odd now. And not anything like the way the younger generation hits the town these days. But there are some common threads between then and now. There's always a place to be. You might have a couple of cans before you head in. People had the same conversations and the same crack. There were a lot fewer places to go out back then, so even if you had no interest in a disco competition, you'd go along anyway. Lorraine McDonnell and her sister Teresa both went to the Stardust that night. Teresa wanted to check out the dance, but Lorraine didn't really care. She just wanted to see her
3: friends. you well, we went to the dancing competition, but I've been there a good few times. She mainly went for the dancing competition. Now, you wouldn't think she was 16 years of age and that, so she would make herself look older, as most girls do. i I, I yeah, fairly regular, so it just happened to be there. It was a regular pit spot I would go to. Or even to the landing room that was in the back. So it was a fairly regular spot if I wasn't going into town. A lot, you'd, you'd see people who we went to school with, I mean, you couldn't, you'd nearly know everybody when you go into it. So it was nearly like, almost like a community gym because you knew everybody.
0: Other people ended up in the club that night by chance. Eugene Kelly's brother Robert was 17 and he had a job working on the ships. Robert had been due to sail again for a week at sea the Tuesday before the dance. Now he used to walk from Tuesday to Tuesday, Tuesday on, Tuesday off. And it's strange because of the fact when he went back on the Tuesday, the ship broke down on the Thursday and they were sent off from Ross because it was something to do with engine failure. And he ended up with the Stardust the night after and he was the only one among all his friends. There must be about 12 of them. He shouldn't have been there. Selena McDermott was too young to be going to the Stardust, but she can remember three of her older siblings all separately making plans to head to it that night.
1: It was... Um Willie and George, my man and dad knew that Willie and George were going to the Stardust, but they didn't know that Marcella was. They had no idea. They thought that Marcella was, uh, with a friend and um, babysitting. Now, Marcella told me that she was going to the Stardust, so I knew she was gone. Of course, I wouldn't tell my man and dad or any of them because I wouldn't rat on her. So, uh, she actually had her clothes that she was wearing to the Stardust in a uh, this little black bag that she was sneaking out into the um, I remember that vividly, very clear. George and Willie were going sort of with their own friends. And I think George was meeting a girl there. I think she was from the country, but she died as well. Then Willie was going with his mates. Yeah, but they didn't know that Marcella was there. She was with um, Don and Mahon and a good few others.
0: People knew you'd have a good night if you went to the Stardust. It pulled in crowds from all over the city. Maurice Fraser lived a bit of a journey away in Sandymount on Dublin's south side, but he had planned to head across the Liffey to the Stardust that night with his sister Thelma and her boyfriend Michael. Well, M- Michael's
4: uh, brother Patrick, uh, Pat, he was uh, dancing in competition that that night. So uh, Telma and Michael, they, they were at a function in the, the pub next door, which is uh, part of the same complex. She she was uh, involved in uh, union organizing, union stuff, and there was a union meeting gathering, like uh, drinks and whatever, uh, going on in the next room next door. And then they they would go over to uh, the Stardust to watch uh, Patrick. Uh, perform you know Uh, Pat was only I'd say 16 17 you know I I I initially was supposed to go but uh, things things didn't work out so you know I'm here today to actually tell the story uh, you know uh, you know maybe I should have been there you don't know you know you don't know
0: Morris had been to the club a few times before but there was something from a couple of months before the night of the fire that stands out in his memory.
4: There was a, a concert on. I, I can't remember who was playing at the, at that night. The lights went out. Emergency lights light flickered for about 10 minutes, going on and off. And uh, the singers, the group of singers, continued to just with drums and percussion or whatever. But uh, all the staff came out with candles, lighting them there, lighting here. But yeah, that's one thing that I recall.
0: What Morris saw raises the question of whether there was already something wrong at the Stardust. Safety issues had been repeatedly raised with the owners in the months before the fire. The building itself had been under scrutiny. It wasn't a purpose-built nightclub, before that it was a jam factory. It was part of an industrial estate owned by the Butterleys. They were a Dublin family who started off with very little but became wealthy and successful as they grew their business empire in the 1970s and into the 80s. Patrick Butterly was the head of the family, and the club was run by his son Eamon. The Butterlies really had to fight to open the Stardust in the first place. Starting in 1972, they spent six years trying to get planning permission to open venues on the site. Dublin Corporation repeatedly turned them down, but the Butterlies got their wish in March 1978 when they finally opened the complex. There were three venues, the Silver Swan pub, a function room restaurant called the Lantern Rooms and the Stardust itself. If you were going to the Stardust on a typical night out, you'd probably pop into the Silver Swan for a drink first. You'd then head over to the Stardust, pay a couple of pounds to the doorman and head inside. Here's what it'd be like for a regular heading in on a typical night out.
5: I paid me a few bob to your man at the door in the little booth on your right as you walked in. The fee included a few sausage and chips at the end of the night, but I'd never bother with that. There was a bit of a queue. All the young ones had worn jackets out because it was freezing. I milled behind them as we went from the small corridor of the entrance hall that opened up into the main ballroom. The space was massive and I had my eye out looking for one of my pals who I said I'd meet here. They weren't on the rows of chairs in front as you walked in. The stage was on your right, facing towards the rest of the ballroom, but sure no one was on the dance floor yet. The stage was only small, but the space to dance out in front of it was huge. My mate wasn't at the two small bars either side of the stage. I'd normally sit up at the tiered seating on the left, but there was big curtains separating you from it that night. The other spot with the tiered seating was at the very back, past the dance floor and other seats by the main bar, which was open. As I walked around, I eventually spotted your man standing at the main bar. Loads of people were already there. I nodded at him to get me a point as I turned and looked back at the place. Seats in front of me and to the back of me were filling up, and I could see the DJ setting up the decks on stage. I held a couple of seats for my mate as he came down with the two drinks, and he ran straight for a piss in the jacks by the side of the stage. It's always easy to find the jacks, even when the dance floor was jammed and the lights were dimmed. I thought to myself, be a good night here.
0: The movable partition you just heard mentioned was on the left-hand side as you walked in. You'll hear it referred to later as the West Alcove. On the night of the fire, it was closed off, with a long curtain separating the alcove from the main hall. Towards the back, you had more seating in the North Alcove and the bar. There were six exits from the Stardust, including five fire exits. Whether or not these were locked on the night of the fire will become a crucial part of later investigations. Exit 1 was up some stairs at the very back of the venue. Exit 2 was the main entrance where people came in. Exit 3 was behind the stage, next to a set of toilets. Exit 4 was to the right of the stage as it faced out onto the ballroom. Exit 5 was on that same side, slightly further up, as was exit 6, close to the back wall of the venue. When planning permission was granted, the maximum capacity in the main room of the Stardust was 1,458. It's believed around 840 people were there on the night of the fire. The venue was inspected several times before that night by Martin Donoghue, who worked for what is now called Dublin City Council, but was Dublin Corporation back then. Donoghue was diligent in his work. He wasn't a fire safety officer because that job didn't exist back then. Instead, he was an inspector of places of public resort, with special responsibility for electrical matters. But in his visits to the Stardust, Donahue was on the lookout for anything that could potentially cause safety problems, and he found problems there again and again. He visited the Stardust complex seven times in just 18 months, between July 1979 to January 1981, and each time he found a problem. A passageway blocked by a large box or loose chairs. An emergency exit with a plastic skip in front of it. An exit door chained and locked. Later investigations would lay out what happened during each of these visits.
6: On the 4th of July, 1979, he found that one leaf of the exit door on the west side of the lantern rooms was not opening fully. He brought this to the attention of Mr Eamon Butterley. on that occasion. He visited the premises again on the 10th of August 1979 and the position had not been rectified. He again drew it to the attention of Mr Butterly. On the occasion of this visit, he also found loose tables obstructing the passageway leading from the main bar to exit 5. He pointed out this condition to Mr PJ McGrath.
0: He paid another visit around a year later.
6: On the 7th of August 1980, he found that the portable platform close to exit four was causing an obstruction, and that there were also a number of loose seats obstructing the passageway on the east side of the building.
0: The inspector returned again later that month and found a plastic skip full of empty bottles blocking the way out of exit five.
6: On the 4th of September 1980, as a result of a complaint from a member of the guardie, he inspected the Silver Swan and found an exit door which was chained and locked. He drew this to the attention of Mr. Butterley. He said that he was not aware that the door should be kept open and that he would have it opened immediately.
0: Butterly, in this case, was somewhat correct. This was not in breach of the relevant bylaws. Donoghue returned later that year and found emergency doors locked. He was unimpressed with the response from staff.
6: On the 24th of November 1980, he inspected the Stardust again and found that Exit 5 was chained and locked and that the bolt on the panic bar mechanism was broken and the upright piece hanging loose. He brought this to the attention of Mr. Kennan, who explained that the vertical piece had been broken during the evening and that the door was locked and chained for security reasons. He, the witness, insisted on the lock and chain being removed from the door. He said that if Mr. Kennan was worried about security, he should put a man on the door, but the door must be left unlocked. Mr. Kennan then unlocked the door.
0: On the 15th of January 1981, on a night when there was a big crowd in the Stardust, Donoghue found the passage to one of the exits obstructed by a large box. He told Eamon Butterly and the promoter of the night's event that it had to be removed. Donoghue then found it in between two toilet doors in the main ballroom. The box was eventually taken away. In a letter to Patrick Butterley following this, the planning officer at the corporation noted bylaws which, quote, require that special care be taken to ensure that the means of escape provided for all persons on the premises are at all times maintained unobstructed and immediately available. Eamon Butterley wrote back to say that the exit in question was cleared immediately and that it would not happen again. Quote, I personally take great care to make sure all exits are clear. Again, I assure you that all exits will be kept clear when the public are on the premises. The tribunal would later say that this letter from Butterley was a deliberate attempt to mislead the corporation into thinking that all the exits would be kept in an unlocked and unobstructed condition while the public were on the premises. No one going to the Stardust that night knew any of this. Their biggest problem was finding what to wear and then away past the bouncers at the front. Susan Darling was heading with her older sister Catherine and their friend Paula O'Brien. It was a fiercely cold night. So, as well as looking good, you had to try to stay warm too.
3: I remember getting ready and I remember yeah. the dress. I had my red, and I forget my yeah, red dress. Red I had a red, red dress red on, red on red with red short red sleeves. sleeves in it. Uh, and it was a cold night. I always remember the a cold night because I had a big, heavy coat as well, big, long, heavy grey coat. And uh, I remember coming down and saying to me, my mass, freezing out And my mother used to knit iron cardigans. And she says, me, You can have a lender, and I don't know what happened to her. She has the money at the knitting. There, that. She says, I don't know what happened to her. I says, I won't. So I remember when we got to the Stardust, and sometimes we wouldn't put our stuff in the cloakroom because you had to pay <laughs> to put it in, I think, yeah, didn't you? Yeah. We'd just throw it on the chairs and that. But I said to my friend Karen, that and I, says, I have to put this cardigan in the cloakroom because if that happens, I may not go home. Because my life won't be worth living. The
0: Stardust had a late bar, the only one for miles around. You wouldn't have to rush in too early, so you'd often get a drink next door before heading in.
3: We wouldn't have had a few drinks in the house. We didn't drink as much, you know, definitely, we wouldn't have been allowed drink in the house, but um, now <laughs> we would just go and buy a couple of bottles of Carlsberg special brew because it got drunk really quick. <laughs> um, but now we didn't drink; we just all met up at about, I suppose, probably eight or nine o'clock in the Silver Swan, which was next door to the Stardust. We'd normally meet in there, and every, then you go out because they they were quite strict, um, and if there was a gang of fellas, they wouldn't let them in. So we'd meet different fellas. We knew from work or we knew from the area and said, so, will you walk in with me? Will you? And, you know, you just walked in with fellas and that was it. You paid for yourself. It was just you, only people we knew, do you know what I mean? Fellas you knew. And we'd walk in with different fellas just to like pretend we were a couple and get in. Then go off with their friends and we'd go off with their friends. But uh, otherwise, lads coming down the road were always refused, you know.
0: It wasn't only lads on their own. Antoinette Keegan and our two sisters would have their own plan to make sure that they got in.
2: On a on a normal night going to the stairs, like if there was a few of us few of us gone, we'd have to actually separate ourselves like myself and uh my friend would have to go in, like and my younger sister Martina. We'd go in, say like in a group of three and then my sister Mary and her friend Mary Kenny, it'd probably be ten behind us because we all go in together, right? They'd be told, No, you can't go in. So that's the way we always had to do it. So we'd wait inside, right, make sure that Mary and her friends and the rest of them got in and if they didn't get in then we'd leave but that particular night we all got in now unaware like didn't know that my brother had been refused because it was only like later in tonight the then we met a couple of his friends and they had said that john had been refused so he wasn't allowed in yeah they told him he was too young now, he was 17 but they told me he was too young my younger sister martina she was 16. Now, she had makeup on her so she got in
0: the bouncers knew Errol Buckley was a finalist in the dance competition, so he had no bother getting in with his brothers Albert and Jimmy. They'd been getting him pumped up for the competition all week.
1: They were magic. They were all into music and that. Albert oh, was great in the guitar and all that. Great singer. Uh, Jimmy, good performer, as I was saying to yourself, Jimmy done a load of competitions and all that. So we were pumping you away with what to do and all that, you know, I man. Just go out and let yourself go and just enjoy it as well, like, you know. So it was just Jimmy's starts as that day, like, you know. Him and his wife come up then Chris, then, jimmy uh albert all my mates there was about about 30 40 was going up just because it was a big night in the starters you know and getting good up off them like you know no as i said as i said to you we were all at the house and we'd have one or the bears there and we're all just messing and there were times going to dance and then we had to head up because you had to be early you know to make sure everyone was there to assign the people and say okay you were there with the partner would you and good way, you were getting in for nothing like you know what i mean um, and then you could see the crowds gathering then that night, you know, because the disco didn't start till about, um, it could have been about half twelve, when they got the get, got her up and running, like, you know what I mean? We were all out on the floor and just, they, they play a load of songs, and we were all up giving the lows, like, you know what I mean? The crowds gathered to watch Errol and the other contenders show off their moves,
0: cheering them on. Some people stood on seats or tables or wherever they could to get a better view. It's already well past 1am at this stage, Two winners will be chosen, one boy and one girl. Errol pulled out all the stops
1: for Patrick Hernandez's disco hit, Born To Be Alive. But well, what they were doing, they were playing a couple of songs and they were, they were picking out people then, you know, the people that they just, you know, they put putting aside more or less. And it was going down to, say, ten people then, and then, then they left ten people going then, and then there was another girl that won it with me, like, you know. I think there was three or four judges so they picked the a girl and a guy, like you know, I man. I couldn't believe it, like you know. <laughs> we were up on the stage, and then we went into the back dressing room with Jimmy and all that, you know. And we'd all say well done and all that. We got a few photographs, and he says when we come back out we still have a bit of an encore card up on the stage, you know. And we just done all that. It was great, like you know. It wasn't even the belt prize; just winning the winning winning the the competition, that you know. Uh, we came down off the stage. I came down off the stage with Jimmy. Jimmy was up at the back of the stage and come came down off of here. We were going back off to the table. I think I had another half a pint or something. We were back out on the floor. We were all just dancing and everyone was just scattered, talking about you know, stuff and all that. It's roughly 30 a.m. at this stage.
0: With the competition now over, Errol, crown champion, people took to the dance floor themselves. Others just sat back down to their drinks or to finish the last of their sausage and chips. These were the first people to realise something was wrong.
3: Didn't bother dancing, I don't know. We were sitting there like, chatting. Um, I remember sitting, because it was freezing cold. It was a really cold night. And I said, the bouncer to passed up and down because of where we were sitting. And we knew the bouncers, you know. And uh, I said, I had a chance to turn the heat on? This place is freezing. We are sitting there. And then suddenly I got like, did you ever step out of a if you're out on the street and it's really cold and you step into a shop or something and it's really warm you get that shudder your body kind of goes whoops, sudden change in temperature and I sat there and I got that shudder and I said Jesus don't tell me they're turning the heating on now um, well it must be nearly time to go home and I looked at my watch and it was 1.33 I was after to get one of these digital watches for my birthday you know you pressed the light came on It was. so I remember hitting the light and looking and saying 1.33 now they're turning the heating on um, so it turns actually it wasn't the heating it was the forced the heat from the fire that I suppose I felt.
0: Those who investigated the fire spoke to many people who recalled the moment they realised something was happening. One was Deirdre Brady, who told investigators that she remembered some disturbance around her. She looked through one of the gaps in the blind into the West Alcove. This area was empty. She saw what seemed to be a very small fire on the sea in Tier 9 of Road B. The seating in the alcove was tiered, with rows placed above the other. This would have been towards the back of the west alcove. Deirdre thought it could be easily brought under control. Another was Sharon O'Hanlon. Here's what she told the investigators.
6: Sharon O'Hanlon said that after the disco competition was over, she went back to the table. She remembered Frances Winston asking her whether she could smell burning. She then saw that the blind appeared to be very bright and she looked underneath it. She saw what appeared to her to be the three seats in tiers 7, 8 and 9 of Row A on fire, with flames nearly reaching the ceiling. Valerie Walsh also remembered Frances Winston, asking her if she smelled smoke or something burning. She said no, and then Sharon O'Hanlon asked her the same question. She then smelt the burning and looked under the blind with the other two girls and saw some seats near the back wall burning.
0: People closer to the main bar were crouching down and looking under the blind. They could see smoke and a glow behind the blind. This attracted even more people who were wondering what was going on. Some thought that a fight had kicked off. The music kept playing and the dance floor was still crowded with people.
2: The DJ made an announcement right that they, um, the winners had been picked and they got to announce the winner. So then the winners was announced, they went up and got their trophy. And then after that then everyone was back on the dance floor and we were back up there dancing away and literally, I'd say, could have been only minutes. Um, I seen the smoke coming across the ceiling and I thought the DJ was after the letting the special effects off. And I said the DJ's after letting the special effects off and then my friend said to me, look over there, there's a small fire. Now when I looked over, it was only a small fire. It was only about 18 inches high.
0: There was one telephone in the Stardust, just inside the entrance. No one had mobiles back then. Peter O'Toole was using it to ring the guards. His girlfriend, Anne Rowe, had just had her bag stolen. All 999 calls were automatically recorded and the time logged. Peter called the guardie at 1.42am. From the transcript, it's clear that before he can finish the call, the alarm is raised that the Stardust is on fire. Hello? Yes, hello? I'm
6: at the Stardust Disco, can you hear me? Yes. Handbag was robbed. Your
0: girlfriend's handbag was robbed. She's the
6: manager asked in the shoe shop in the Northside Shopping Centre. Wait now,
0: would you? Stardust.
5: Yes,
6: I'm at the Stardust Disco. Disco, can my girlfriend's bag went
5: missing? Someone has to take it. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? And where were you? Where were the guards? Where did you meet the guards? What's your name? Hello. What is your name? What is your name?
0: Time
1: on Stardust. Yeah, when the call came in, I was on an ambulance. We were told there was a big disco down in the Stardust, and there was a lot of calls in, for, in from it that there was a fire in it. We would go down and check it out.
3: We stood for a minute and I thought, will we win the loo? Will we have a smoke?
2: Will we, you know, while they put this out? The DJ made another announcement then for everyone to make their way to the nearest exit that the fire is out of control.
3: I, when I looked down, I could see all the smoke billowing out of the kitchen part, right? And I said, the fucking place is on fire, right? I was expecting the lights to be on, and they weren't. It was pitch dark. I like, where the hell the fuck are we going to get out of here?
0: Thank you for listening to episode two of Stardust. In this episode, we talked quite a bit about what it would have been like inside the club. If you go to our Twitter, at StardustPod, we've shared maps and images that can give a clear idea of what it looked like and where the exits were. These details become really important in the investigations into the fire. I'm Sean Murray, and this podcast is produced by Nikki Ryan with executive producer Christine Bowen. The image in our cover art is by PA Images. Thanks for listening, and please share if you like what you heard and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you to those who have subscribed so far. Episode 3 will be out next Thursday, 24th of October.